0: Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us again. Again, I'm being a little presumptuous. Maybe this is your first time. Maybe this isn't an again. Maybe this is a, well, who are these guys' moments? Well, if that's you, who are we? Well, I am C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church here in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a bunch of stuff. I've been a commercial real estate investor. I've been a commercial building contractor. So I've done a number of different things, and I've even taught philosophy. But enough about me. Let's uh, go around the horn, and let's go to you, Tom. Have you tell us about yourself and Glenn, and then back to me, and then I'll talk about a couple of things and then jump into the topic of the day.
1: Um, Tom Price. I teach uh, systematic theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy. I teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And uh, that's about it for today.
0: <laughs> right. Done a lot that's of right. things. Just but... so folks
1: know, <laughs> yeah. Just, just
0: so folks know, I'm but on the, I'm the West Coast. And these guys drive. are on the East Coast, and it's a, and, it, and it's about nine o'clock at night for them. <laughs> so they've had a full day, but we're 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 going to try I've to keep the a energy level up
1: today. <laughs> well, that's All right. How about days. you, Glenn? Glenn. <laughs>
2: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries, senior fellow at Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, retired history professor, and I'm in the process of moving out of state from Connecticut to Indiana, and I am currently homeless.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, we've got a we've got an image there of Glenn on the street. He's got uh his his microphone and his laptop with him, but he's living in a cardboard box. <laughs> okay. just a, Anyone who sees yeah, the yeah, image of Glenn right now knows he's not in the cardboard. <laughs> yeah,
2: so, right. So I'm right. working with a virtual background here. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Well uh one of the things we want folks to know about is I think that the week that the week that this episode is going to drop is the week that we are going to be uh, beginning the podcast tour in the Pacific Northwest. And so we're going to be in the Portland, Oregon area. Then we're going to be heading up to Seattle, Washington, and then to uh, Moscow, Idaho. And uh, those different locations are all uh, notorious for their own reasons, <laughs> but anyway, we're going to be there in each of those sites and having a great time talking about stuff that we like to talk about on the Theology Podcast. If you want to learn more about that tour and about where we'll be in each of those locations, just go to the Theology Podcast website, and uh, the places that will be appearing, uh, you, it, they're kind of like, you know, a number of them, I think most of them are actually uh, just anyone who wants to come kind of uh, events, uh, no You know, uh, cost uh, to to the folks who attend, and uh, we'd love to see you. Anyway, why don't we transition to this into the topic of the day? And uh, the topic of the day is slavery. Um, This is this is obviously a topic that is uh, fraught with uh, all sorts of uh, baggage, or sort of uh, you know invested with all kinds of uh, contemporary political um, jargon. But I wanted to spend a little time thinking about uh, slavery in antiquity, and uh, its eventual uh, abolition, initially in the West, and now throughout the the, the entire world. At least in principle, I, you know, I think we can talk about uh, whether or not slavery continues in the world today, and I think it does. But at least I think I'd like to talk about how we even got to a place where it could be considered, uh, you know, something that should be and could be abolished, because that is not a foregone conclusion. I think one of the things that uh, got prompted my thinking on this is the the short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a fellow named Philemon. I just preached a message uh, from that book here recently, and I didn't do it justice. If I could do it again, I'd like to. Uh, just because it's so rich and it's so important. And I really do think that, you know, even though I can't prove it, I do think the beginning of the end of slavery in the West is the book of Philemon or the letter of Philemon. And uh, I hope maybe to make that case by the time we're done. But I think the first thing to address before we can even get into that is the uh, universal uh, sort of a practice of slavery around the world. I think that's something that most people uh, don't believe was the case, but in fact was the case. I read a book years ago by, by a, a, a man named Orlando Patterson. Uh, Patterson is an important thinker and uh, he actually teaches at Harvard. Uh, he's a sociologist and he wrote a book or published a book in the early 1990s entitled freedom in the making of Western culture. Now, in his, uh, you know, introduction to the book, he talks about how he came to uh, write the book. He said initially, uh, his uh, his approach was uh, an attempt to understand why slavery developed in the Western world uh, and uh, what you know transpired to to end it. What he discovered in the course of his research is that. Uh, Slavery—it uh, was practiced throughout the world and in, in, in every culture, and in, in, in each continent. So there was, you know, slavery in the Americas and South America and North America before Europeans arrived. There was slavery in Asia, slavery in Africa, slavery in the Middle East, slavery in Europe. Slavery was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. Um, the idea that slavery was somehow uh, a Western problem or even a Western invention, I think, has to do something with. Kind of the uh, the myth of the uh, noble savage that we owe uh, to you know our friend Rousseau, <laughs> our good friend Rousseau. Anyway, that uh, this idea persists that if you just get away from you know uh, you know developed civilizations, uh, get away from modern institutions, or even you know, medieval or, you know, even ancient institutions, just get back to nature itself. Everybody's just nice to everybody all the time. And we just get along great. And everybody is free, natural freedom. That's the thing that, that we, we think of when we think about the noble savage and we see it even you know, in, in you know, the contemporary world of entertainment, things like remember dances with wolves. Remember that film that came out in the nineties, uh, uh, that was kind of a celebration of the, of the noble savage. Then, you know, Avatar, remember that high uh, sort of, uh, you know, high uh, computer graphics, uh, uh, you know, film that came out maybe a decade ago. It just put, I guess, dances with wolves on another planet. <laughs> As you know, these noble blue people and yes, the, you know, for my the evil human.
2: Go ahead. Glenn. For, my, for my kids, Chris, uh, Avatar was Pocahontas in space. <laughs> that 's right that's
0: right. That's right so the, but the, but there 's this idea that, that, you know that 's right that 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 you 've got these uh people who are living close to the land and they 're just really great folks. The problem with that is that some of the worst slavery uh that has been documented in the history of the world was uh slavery that was practiced by Native Americans uh in South America and in North America. One of the things that folks don 't know is that the Trail of Tears, that horrible event that occurred in the early nineteenth century. Uh, included, uh, which which was of course the forced relocation of Native American peoples from the southeast to sort of the central lower sort of middle you know Midwest you know Oklahoma and so forth, um, included the slaves of those five tribes. In other words, those five tribes that were were relocated were not um, you know the noble savages that we've been led to believe they were. They they had slaves just like. Europeans had slaves. So it makes it very, for a very awkward story if you study it very closely. But anyway, there was slavery in every part of the world. And what, what, um, Patterson seeks to understand is this now, why was slavery, um, abolished in the West and nowhere else? Why was it, you know, it's it's that kind of, that's that question why did science arise in the West? Why did democracy, as we know and practice it, arise in the West? Why did why was slavery identified as a problem, and eventually overcome uh, in the West, and then, of course, exported? You know this this uh, this conviction that freedom is a good thing that all people should enjoy, and that slavery is morally uh, reprehensible. How did that How did that 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 outlook uh, find its way into Asia or into the Americas and so forth? Well. That's the question that Orlando Patterson asks in that book, freedom and the making of Western culture. And one of the reasons why this is, I guess, marvelous, paradoxical is Patterson's black Patterson is a descendant of slaves. He's from Jamaica. So he knew, you know, colonial slavery, uh, from the standpoint of, you know, the experience there in the Caribbean. Anyway, all that said, um, that's what I'd like to reflect on a little bit with you now one of the things I think would be worthwhile, uh, addressing is the, the, uh, I think con- the only conclusion that we can draw from the universal practice of slavery around the world is, and that is that it's, it has a way of sort of, uh, emerging spontaneously. It's not something that uh, is uh, kind of instituted, uh, from the outside. It's something that for some, for, for various reasons emerges from the ground, you know, wherever it, it occurs. Um, Now, I think uh, the one way to approach this is to think about the supply and demand aspect when it comes to slavery. Obviously, there's the demand aspect, which is, isn't it great to have people who, uh, you know, you can uh, control and direct uh, and they're, you know, you don't have to pay them. You you know, you have to keep them alive. You have to feed them and clothe them and house them and so forth. But you don't have to uh, give them the, you know, the, the equivalent of a a uh, wage, uh, you've got, you know that. So there's the demand side. That's easy to understand, you know. Uh, but what about the supply? Well, there's man stealing, which of course is condemned in scripture, and I think universally condemned. And but it happened. Obviously, we see, uh, you know, people who are abducted and 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 pressed into slavery in many parts of the world and over the course of human history, and uh, that's that's you know one way that. We can identify, you know, a source of supply. But um, that's not sufficient to explain how, you know, the reasons for slavery emerging in many, many cases and in all cases. I think that this is what Patterson is.
2: Yeah. uh, Let me let me jump in here. An interesting example is African slavery. That is to say, slavery within the African continent. Supply and demand comes in here, but it comes in in a different way. Um, Europe, for example, was relatively densely populated and resource poor. Africa is relatively, this is overgeneralizing, but it's a reasonable case to make that Africa was relatively sparsely populated and resource rich. Now, if you think of economy as the control of scarce resources, In Europe, wars are fought over control of resources. In Africa, wars are fought over control of labor. So what you would do when you went to war was less concerned about taking territory and more concerned with taking population. Hmm. And what that does then is when you have a war and one side wins, the king takes possession of the population of the losing side. And they literally become slave, his slaves at that point. Hmm, right. So there, there's, now this is discussed, if, if you want my footnote on this, it's discussed by Robert Thornton, I believe it was, in Africa and Africans in the making of the Atlantic world. I'm pretty sure he, he went through this there. But that, that's another component here that most people don't really even realize. The fact is that the African uh, transatlantic slave trade um, was simply a matter from the European perspective of tapping into existing slave trade networks in Africa, right? You know, yeah, because this I was all a part important. of the culture, it was part of the economy, and it was even foundational to why they went to war with each other, right? Right.
0: Yeah, and I think that gets at one of the 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 root uh, or roots of uh, you know the supply issue uh, or the supply, and that is uh, displacement. So displacement can occur in a number of ways, obviously warfare being one of those ways. But there are other ways that displacement can occur. You know, displacement can occur through uh, famine, uh, through pestilence, um, through uh, plagues of various kinds. Um, it can occur through uh, economic collapse. Uh, it can occur because of death. There are, there are various ways in which people uh, become uh, dislocated now in, in in a world that is you know subsistence in nature in other words the economies are not producing a lot of surplus uh capital you you find yourself in a situation where you just simply cannot support the kinds of institutions that can can care for and manage uh displaced peoples so where do those people go how do they fit into a society that doesn't have the resources to pay for, you know, child welfare services or, you know, refugee camps and that kind of thing. Well, you've got to absorb them into the existing, you know, sort of uh, economic structures that are on the ground. Now, the problem that this creates for, say, any subsistence, uh, say, uh, agricultural society is... Uh, what's the long term prospect of all of these people that are being absorbed? do they get uh the same treatment that anyone else who who is born into that society receives so let's say a household uh is a you know agricultural household farming household and they and uh there are these people who come into the community and they come into the household um, are they just you know provided for or are they expected to work well of course they work everybody works even the head of the house works you know cincinnatus when he was approached by the senate uh, and made dictator of rome he was at the plow <laughs> you know he was actually <laughs> physically you know uh, you know operating a plow with his sons and his slaves and his his uh, estate you know when we think about you know you know rome uh, we tend to think about it at its zenith you know when you have these vast uh, estates, uh, you know, that patricians ran and they're sitting in their, you know, villas eating grapes and being fanned by slaves. Well, in the Republic, you know, at the time when, you know, uh, is, you know, made dictator, his his estate, his plot, according to the authorities in antiquity, was less than five acres <laughs> think, think about this. This is a guy who's just like a small, as small small a farmer as you can be, and you know everybody's mm-hmm. at work. The difference between you know his sons and his slaves is what you know uh, you know Paul gets to in Galatians chapter four verses one through seven. Sons are heirs; they work, but they're heirs. Slaves work, but are not heirs. That's the main difference. It's not as though the sons are getting paid at the end of every day. You know, this, this, everybody is just kind of making it, uh, just barely, you know, eking out a living. Uh, we're not talking about the kinds of surpluses that we take for granted today. So everybody is working. And in order for these displaced people to find a place, they have to be brought into households often and given work and, uh, given work in order to, to eat alongside the people who uh, are legally, you know, have legal status in their societies. But because they are outsiders, there's no legal sort of place uh, that they occupy uh, that gives them, affords them rights of inheritance, et cetera, in that society or a vote, so forth. So so the displacement of people creates a just a really practical problem. What do we do with these people who don't belong. Now, if you look at, say, Leviticus, you know, and how Moses directs, uh, you know, the practice of slavery within Israel, the Israelites were not, they were not uh, allowed to take each other into uh, slavery. They were to be, you know, cared for. Uh, They had certain rights as Israelites. Uh, They might uh, become indentured servants, but they would be, Uh, according to the law, liberated at the year of Jubilee and go back to their original plots of land that their clans uh, were given. Uh, But outsiders could be taken in uh, to bondage and serve uh, in, you know, in the households of Israelites because they didn't have legal status. So there is an important distinction here between, uh, you know, legal status uh, and displacement. And people who lack legal status and their, uh, you know, uh, the practical problem of what do you do with those folks and their place in a society. And this is what happens, you know, around the world. We've got these, these you know, situations in which people are displaced for a range of reasons, some legitimate, some, you know, just because of uh, the situations that they find themselves in due to natural disaster. And then, of course, some due to war or stealing. So that's the situation that we find on the ground. But somehow in the West, uh, this is identified as a problem to be reckoned with and addressed. And I think that's the thing that's intriguing to me. But anyway, so as I've laid it out, I know that you've already contributed a little bit uh, to, to the conversation here, Glenn, on trying to understand you know, where slavery and displacement and so forth fits into the African scene. But, uh, wondered if, uh, Tom and Glenn, you have some other thoughts you'd like to add before we jump into the next yeah. phase of the conversation.
1: Yeah. One thing I wanted to kind of also bring into it, not go far with, but, um, you have, um, you know, the, the general concern of, of welfare, I think, uh, you know, for families and people trying to survive and, 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 and then you have, of course, um, people who have interest in expanding that, and and um, a, a, you know um, expanding their dominance, if you will, um, and their power and 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 their reach. Um, so you, you have that side, but then you also have today just as much as in the past, though in different forms. But but you also have uh, oftentimes very brutal treatment of of others. Um, especially p- political power to, to those who don't have power. And I think those relationships are not across the board, as you mentioned. Not in every case in the past um, was it um, as, you know, it was slavery, for example, as brutal as it is in other cases, um, or the ill treatment as in other cases. Some, like you said, could see something as an extension of its family, though, without the, the legal long-term, um, benefits. But others could really treat them in dehuman, dehumanizing ways. And I think this is a place where the Christian contribution um, starts to radically shift gears as it kind of begins to infuse itself into cultures and, and things like that. The relationship of human beings in the image of God starting to take root in communities and, and social life. Um, But, again, I don't want to trace that too far, but I didn't want to leave it out. Yeah, I think that's good. I I want to add what what Tom
2: said about uh, social welfare. Um, The issue of social welfare is really important for Old Testament laws on slavery, dealing with Israelites. The idea here is there is no social safety net provided by the government or, frankly, anybody else. Private almsgiving may be encouraged. There are gleaning laws, things like that. But if your family falls on hard times, if you're destitute, the, in this culture, the way you would get out of it would be to sell yourself or your family into slavery. That would be the only way, literally, you could keep body and soul together. So what they do in Israel is they take that practice. What God does in the law is he takes that practice and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. When somebody sells himself into slavery, you got to let them go after seven years. And when you let them go, You let them go generously. You give them a lot of stuff to let them get started again. So it was a way of helping people get back on their feet. Um, And so it was literally intended as a way of helping people maintain their dignity. Okay, they've got the status of slaves, but they're continuing to work, which is essential for dignity. And they are working to get themselves back to the point where they can Um, take a, a normal role within society once again. So there was actually in the way the Old Testament laws are written. It's actually intended to benefit those who are forced for whatever reason into destitution, into, into a, and when we talk about destitution in this culture, we mean you are in danger of starving in the street. Okay. This is a way of getting those people through.
0: Yeah. It, you know, I think we could uh, speculate about how well the Israelites actually practice those laws, but the laws obviously they didn't. are dealing. <laughs> yes. <yeah, that's right. laughs> but the laws obviously are intended to serve the serve the uh, social social welfare of the of the poorest uh, members of that community and uh, help them to
1: get, as you noted, back on their feet. Now, um one of the things
0: that I think that is a problem for people today is we just lack uh, the kind of imaginative, you know, the, the imagination, uh, the, the faculties of imagination that will allow us to envision what it would be like to live in a society that doesn't have a lot of surplus capital. You know, we live, you know, in a time where we, we actually have the United States government uh, destroying crops because we're too fruitful. This is actually something that happens every year where we have, you know, overproduction and uh, in order to keep the, the markets from being flooded with goods, uh, there are farmers who are told you need to wipe out this, this part of your crop so that we, we, we don't have too much. That's our problem. <laughs> that wasn't their problem. <laughs> and, and we can, we can carry this over into every other, you know, sort of productive enterprise. You know, the industrial revolution, has helped to kick into gear a kind of production of you know a hyper hyper productive machine you know machine that allows us to generate enough surplus capital to fund all kinds of social programs that are intended to address the problems that we're talking about here that could never have been addressed in the ancient world in the ways that we just take for granted and i think that's the key we take things for granted we don't realize just how different the situation in the ground, on the ground is for us. We have some of the fattest poor people in the history of the world. <laughs> this was not a problem in the past. <laughs> so now, with that in mind, uh, even so, uh, you could say, well, you know, uh, slavery, and in, in maybe even in, in a particular way, is uh, just uh, obsolete. We just don't need slaves like we used to need them. We've got enough. Production or productive capacity to have a, a world without slavery, but I can see you're you're, you're shaking your head, Glenn. And I think there are other reasons why we still have slavery, and slavery is re, re uh, is coming back today, uh, but it's uh, uh, happening in kind of the nooks and crannies. It's not happening, and it's and it's spontaneous. It's not. It's not just, it's not laws that are saying you will have slaves. In fact, the the laws say you shall not have slaves, but slavery is reappearing in different parts of the world. Anything you want to say about
2: that, Glenn? Yeah, well, actually, it's not reappearing. It never disappeared. Um, Legally, it did, certainly, and that is under the influence of laws coming out of the Christian tradition ultimately. But slavery of different forms, whether you call it that or not, there are different terms that may be used here, um, is, is endemic. There are more slaves in the world today than there ever have been in history. and Can you flesh issue. that out a little bit? Yeah, can you flesh that out a little bit for okay, our well, listeners? For think- sure. For example, a few years back, actually probably more than a few now, uh, there was an instance of human trafficking and slavery in Connecticut where some people had come in from somewhere in Latin America. I don't remember where they had their passports taken away and they were set to work in the timber industry. And so they were working there and ostensibly to pay off their debt, but their room and board was so high that they effectively had no money. And so they were, they were there forever because they would never be able to earn enough to buy their way out. Um, in, uh, Pakistan, India, places like that, brick making kilns are, are notorious for slavery. You've got uh, carpet making in Central Asia, again Pakistan and elsewhere, uh, that use slave labor all the time. Um, human trafficking, sex, sexual slavery, um, most prostitution effectively is slavery. I mean, we can go on and on and on. There, there's a the the degree in well then you go to places like China where a lot of the products that we buy in our stores are made by slave labor. You know, you look at, um, you look at name brand products that are made in South Asia, slave labor again, maybe not officially, but effectively that's what it is. So it, it, this, this is a really serious endemic problem in our world today that we just simply choose not to be aware of. And we don't realize how much again,
1: like, Oh, go ahead. No, okay. yeah, I was talking like you know we we're always talking about systemic issues of power and oppression. We don't realize, I, I always tell my students who are always into only seeing it from one popular angle, which is probably the least compared to what's going on in most of the world, but just how many systems of of dominance and power involved with just having one of these. Um, How much I am benefiting and every student I have who claims to be marginalized and oppressed is actually part of a a whole system um, that does exploit all around the world to get these things very affordably. And most of them aren't willing to give them up. Um, And so and so they don't see how how interconnected all of all of the world is to benefiting from so much of this.
2: Yeah. The great irony is that we're we're in a situation in which um, people talk about, um, you know, if you read Ibrahim Kendi or or um, uh, Robin D'Angelo they talk about how whites are automatically racists because they're complicit in a racist system, whether they feel like they're racists or not. Anybody who buys Nikes is complicit in slavery. <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. Anybody who buys the smartphones, all of these things that are produced in these other countries that we buy so cheaply, or in case of Nike, maybe some spend so much on, um, you know, designer clothes, all of these kinds of things are frequently made using slave labor. And yet somehow complicity in that is being totally ignored.
0: So what I'd I'd like to think a little bit about now is why... Uh, this is even uh, a thought of as a problem or considered a problem when in many parts of the world, it was not considered even conceivably, you know, sort of like uh, uh possible. It was, it wasn't even conceivable that you could have a society without slaves. In other words, this was, this was a, this was a, a way of addressing certain issues on the ground or problems on the ground that, that worked. And, uh, Perpetuated itself. So why is it in the West that we have uh, this value, freedom, which uh, we believe ought to be distributed broadly and enjoyed by everyone, not just certain groups of people, but everyone? I've got, a, I've got a theory, and it's it merely a theory. I don't have any way to substantiate it. I haven't done enough work on the idea. But let me propose uh, for the rest of our time together to consider the, 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 the basic idea that I'd like to propose. Now, some of, this, uh, some of the things I'm about to say are not original. I mean, uh, in the book, Freedom in the Making of Western Culture, Patterson talks about, you know, why is the West, you know, different? He talks about civ- the value of civic freedom as it emerges out of the Greco-Roman tradition. To, uh, he talks about spiritual freedom and uh, particularly uh, the contribution of the Apostle Paul to our understanding in the West of what it means to be a human being and to be free. And so there, are, and, he, and then he gets into something he refers to as sovereign freedom. So there are there are these different things that are worth thinking about. But I'd like to think a little bit about. Uh, the contribution of the book of Philemon to this whole matter so in the book of Philemon or the letter I should say we have a, a personal letter written uh, in, by Paul in his own hand and he, he makes you know uh, a point of saying I'm writing this letter with my own hand <laughs> so implying that he didn't who always did he? do that there were you know people who took notes uh, in Emanuensis who you know, wrote down with the things that he said. In this case, he was writing it in his own hand. And this is a personal letter. And I think it's safe to assume that he wrote lots of personal letters. Uh, this isn't the only personal letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. But for some reason, this letter uh, is scripture. It's, it's risen to that level, or it was at that level and was recognized as being scripture by the church. Now, did he have a second copy made? Uh, did he write it out twice and keep one copy and then, you know, s- you know, share it with other people, or was this a letter that, you know, he handed to Onesimus, the slave that uh, had escaped from Philemon and was now being sent back to Philemon with this letter from Paul? To uh, give a little bit of background to, to listeners who are not familiar with the letter, basically, Paul is in prison. He's near. He's near the end of his life. He's uh, in Rome, and he's. Um, he's uh, addressing uh, a leader of a church named Philemon. And uh, Philemon apparently uh, is wealthy enough to have a large enough, you know, a large household with uh, slaves in it. And uh, Onesimus is uh, a runaway slave and somehow finds his way to Paul. And uh, uh, in the either he was, uh, a, a believer when he fled Philemon's home, or he becomes a believer after he's, you know, uh, united to, you know, or he c- comes into contact with Paul. We don't know, uh, but Paul says that this guy Onesimus is uh, is a good guy. He's been a big help to him, and he and uh, he believes that he's a, a genuine Christian and a very, uh, uh, you know, dear brother. So. He gives this letter to Philemon or to, to Onesimus to deliver to Philemon as he sends Onesimus back to his master. Now, at, at one level, you, you know, you, some people might say, well, well, shouldn't Paul have just kind of kept, you know, Onesimus there with him and, 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 and uh, prevented, you know, uh, this nasty Philemon guy from getting, you know, control of him again? Well, the contents of the letter are fascinating to think about because it's pretty clear, I think, that Paul wants Philemon to, uh, uh, you know, uh, liberate Onesimus, but he doesn't come out and say it. Um, It's just, it comes through, I think, between the lines in the letter. And in the letter, uh, Paul does some very clever things. Uh, First of all, he identifies himself as being in bonds he says i'm a prisoner prisoner of christ you know for christ jesus so and he says this a number of times and then he calls philemon a brother you know a number of times he says you're my brother you're my brother my brother and he then he refers to anesimus as his brother so paul is saying anesimus is my brother and then he says i'm giving him back to you so that you can recognize him in effect in verses 14 and 15 as a brother <laughs> so in other words yeah. Uh, he, this is now a brother. Now this would bring into the mind of any person in the empire, uh, the whole matter of inheritance. So Anesimus is an inheritor of eternal life, just like Paul is an inheritor of eternal life. Yeah. And Philemon is an inheritor of eternal life. So therefore, uh, there's a new kind of status that this slave has. He's not simply a person who's living in someone else's household and doesn't have the rights of, of inheritance. He has the rights of inheritance in God's household. Now, with that in mind, yeah. what, uh, what, what? You know, how does that affect uh, the mindset of masters who are believers? Now, so that's, I think, kind of a, I guess, you know, you could say, kind of an earworm or a mindworm. It's something that kind of wor- worms its way through your whole thinking process. I cannot uh, sort of regard this person in the way that other people regard their slaves this is a brother in christ i i and i'm accountable to his father for how i treat him so there's all of that but as christendom develops throughout europe there's no distinction between citizenship and church membership right so, you know, today in the modern world, we make that distinction. You know, we we're, we have a very clear yeah. distinction in our mind between the separation of church and state. There was none of that. <laughs> so, yeah. so what we've done in our time is is we've, instead of using the categories of the faith to understand our fellow citizens, we've kind of secularized the language, talk about natural rights and things like that. And I think there's a biblical basis for talking to you for using that language. I think that natural rights language is kind of just uh, – the language of the Decalogue inverted, you go from duties to rights. You know, you know I, I could explain a little bit about what, what I mean by that, but but I think the main thing I wanna get across is, it was within Christendom that you could no longer uh, justify slavery. And so that's my thesis within Christendom, because there's no distinction between church and state, you just have parishes. Uh, the church early on uh, prohibits the practice of slavery within Christian Europe. Now, there are different ways in which things don't get... Go ahead, Glenn.
2: Yeah, not quite. I actually uh, wrote a a book chapter on this uh, for a thing that came out a few years ago called True Reason. Um, uh, By the way, the letter to Philemon is probably the letter to Laodicea that Paul mentions at the end of Colossians. The two letters were sent by the same people. There's There's a bunch of common names between them and so on. Um, so it did, and so it was intended to be read in both churches. So it was circulating. Um, but what, what you see in the early church is people will, you know, will, it, what is absolutely clear is that slave trading is considered reprehensible. So buying and selling people is considered something that is, um, that excludes you from the kingdom. Uh, it's one of the great, the, the climax of the things, the, the accusations against Babylon the Great is that she traded in the bodies and souls of men. Okay, this this was, the the, the church clearly understood that as evil. Uh, and you have instances, for example, Augustine talks about one instance where a slave ship broke down on the coast near Regius, and the Christians went out and broke into the ship and freed all the slaves and just hid them, let them disperse. I mean, so Christians were doing things like that, but they were also going into the slave markets specifically to purchase slaves to set them free. Manumission or setting slaves free was an established practice in Rome. So the Christian, some churches would pool money or rich individuals would simply go and buy the slaves for the express purpose of setting them free. And I think the reason for this, there are several things. Philemon is important because Paul implies, as you say to Philemon, he says, you know, Don't hold anything against them. I'll pay back whatever he owes you, that kind of thing. Not to mention that you owe me your very soul. Um, And then he goes on to say, I know you will do more than I'm even asking you to do. What more is there? Setting him free. I mean, you know, so that implication is there. But uh, as Rodney Stark points out, I believe it's in The Rise of Christianity, he talks about the idea of spiritual and moral equality between people as being foundational to Christian ethics. In Christ, there is no slave nor free. You know, uh, and, and this idea of spiritual and moral equality is a pebble in the shoe of Western civilization. Um, so what you get are Christians acting in imitation of Christ. You know, Jesus came to set us free. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Well, we can't free people from their bondage to sin, but we can free them from human bondage. You know, Jesus was a healer, so we should go around and tend the sick. We might not be able to heal them miraculously like he did, but we can tend the sick. You know, these things are done in imitation of understanding what Jesus did. And so this this works its way into the early church, but it takes time. Um, What you have in the early church, frankly, is a failure of imagination they could not picture a world in which slavery was completely abolished. So what they did is they accepted slaves in their midst. Um, there was a bishop in, in Ephesus in the early second century named Onesimus. Whether it was the Onesimus of Philemon or not is unclear, but it is clear that he was a slave because that's a name you would only give to a slave. So they could rise to high office in the church and, um, you you would work to set them free. You'd work to prohibit slave trade, all of these kinds of things. But it takes time for society to get to a point where they realize that, you know what? We should probably just get rid of this. We don't really need it anymore. We we can envision a society without it. Yeah. The, and that's where we're going to take centuries.
1: And in, in the early church, they, they were not, you know, uh, revolutionaries in that sense of the word. They, uh, the, you know, following First Peter, you know, be... You know, for the be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So you have, you know, you have this recognition that the that what they're bearing witness to, um, I think even Howard Wash used to put it this way is, the, is they're not about bringing about transformation, their witness is that things have been transformed because of Christ. There has been a cosmic transformation. The reality that undergirds all this has been changed because of Christ. Therefore, that spiritual vision that you're talking about in Philemon that Paul is emphasizing is far more profound because that is the future of things. That is the reality that is now the case because of Christ's resurrection and so because of that these are now brothers these people we're persecuted the early church we were they were persecuted they also didn't have freedom in the same way in every case except for the more wealthy or the ones that were advancing in terms of you know cultural acceptance um so they 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 endured a lot of what those in you know they had a lot that were slaves that were christians but also they endured a lot of similar marginalization and so yeah the, the the power to step in and change the world um in a revolutionary sense as moderns think about it wouldn't have been in their imagination and it wouldn't have been they, they had something more profound that was the gospel and that that was a proclamation good news that things have been changed and therefore the transformation for, formation the kingdom will come And the, and God's will be done that sets the spiritual revolution in action. Well, the thing I, and I, and I'm
0: completely on board with with the things that you guys have brought to the surface here. But for me, the thing that continues to sort of be a a problem is the problem of institutions. In other words, uh, Mm -hmm. just because you've, you've set a bunch of slaves free on the beach, you still have an issue of where do they go and how do they fit into the society? So, yeah. uh, institutions have to be altered or developed. That's where I think I'd like to spend a lot of time, you know, if I ever get a chance to study this in any more depth, um, to, 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 to do, to do some work, I, because that's what puzzles me because I, because slavery was an institution that solved a problem. It would not yeah. only provided, uh, you know, a, uh, a way to do some things that maybe couldn't have been done otherwise through cheap labor and so forth. But it also solved the displaced person problem. So how displacement, uh, you know, is addressed in sort of this critical sort of formative period in Christian practice
2: would be something I think worth looking into, you know, are well, there. The one thing, oh, Go ahead. One of the things you have to remember is that in the Roman empire, the, Overwhelming source of slaves were prisoners of war, so they're not displaced persons in the normal sense of the word. Okay. Um, you still have the question: of what you do with them once you manumit them? But um, okay. you know, it's it, the the issue of immigration into the empire. Displaced persons in that sense is kind of a different question that that revolves not around slavery but things uh, a thing called uh, federati. That's what they were referred to. Because they, they took a foidus a, 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 they had a treaty, an oath, um, uh, a contract, something along those lines between the people coming in. So that, that the people who are moving into the empire are in sort of a separate category, which you're really dealing with primarily are prisoners of war, which is going to create actually a crisis in Rome when they stop expanding. Right. The, the slave population is going to start declining and that's going to create a whole different set of problems. So what you end so, up with is, uh, when is you're
0: moving. Is,
2: we, we end what you end no, with up then is as a
0: set of institutions that end up perpetuating themselves or needing to perpetuate themselves, uh, and you know when there is the lack of supply, then you have a different kind of problem that develops.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, what's going to end up happening as Rome declines in the West is a lot of the. Um, People are going to move out of the cities into the countryside and so on. And you're going to get this, this situation where that the the noble households, the, the wealthy people with the slaves, can't really afford to feed them. So they're going to stick them out in in um, on their land and have them grow their own food. This became known as a hutted slave. Mm-hmm. You also have poor people who are having trouble commending, quote unquote, their land to the, the, the equivalent of the noblest large landowners uh, on condition that they can work as sharecroppers. Hmm. So you've got sharecroppers right next door to huddled slaves, and these two classes are going to blend and ultimately create serfdom. Hmm. Um, but serfdom, we think of it as just one thing. In Charlemagne's day, there were 11 different categories of serfs. I mean, it's oh, much more cool. complicated than that. Right. But this is, this is how serfdom is going to emerge. Serf, the serfs are very different from slaves, though. They've got m- many more rights. There are all kinds of things that they have that a slave doesn't have. But that's moving into the Middle Ages. Um, it's kind of a uh, different historical and cultural context there. But th- this is the direction things are going to be heading. Right. The uh,
0: the fact that they make that move, though, I think has something to do with the influence of Christian teaching with regard to legal status. So... Um, mm-hmm slavery uh is distinguishable from from the practice of you know the middle practices of the middle ages with through the serfdom but uh obviously uh serfs don't enjoy the kinds of rights that most folks take for granted today there were there were also some obligations that they that they had to meet uh with regard to their status in society but it's not the same thing as slavery and I, and i guess that's the thing i'm trying to trying to sort of track with is how the institutions develop you know that have their their uh sort of their their origins in this christian vision you know uh with regard to the image of god with regard to you know there being you know no slave nor free in christ these things uh how this like you said glenn you know pebble in the shoe of western culture gets uh, addressed uh how, how does the pebble get taken out of the shoe it gets taken out of the shoe by developing new institutions that don't, that are really kind of new to, in the world. Uh, we, we, you have this challenge. Okay. We can't, we can't resort to slavery like humans have all have have resorted to it all over the world, uh, from time
2: immemorial. Right. So what, what we see happening, the first anti-slavery law really that we have on the books uh, comes from Clovis II, the Frankish king, who was married to a woman named Batilda. Batilda was actually originally an, uh, an Anglo-Saxon slave that he set free and ended up marrying. Hmm. Um, and she was a Christian, and under her influence, uh, Clovis is actually going to pass a law that said that you could, that slave trade was illegal and any slave who crossed the border of the Frankish kingdom was automatically set free. And so the the first step is the abolition of the slave trade. It's interesting that this is exactly what Wilberforce will do later. Let's get rid of the slave trade as a way, a first step toward getting rid of slavery. Uh, Then over time, slavery is just going to, like said, this, this, status between poor free individuals and, and huddled slaves. They're just going to kind of merge into each other over time, creating this new institution of serfdom, which then by really the 13th century, certainly 14th century, itself is going to disappear and you're going to move toward free peasants. Right. Uh, a lot of that is on the pressure of socioeconomic circumstances, uh, climate conditions, plague, all kinds of things factor in here but there is also always in the background this notion that people have been set free in Christ and, uh, you know, ultimately Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century yeah. is going to say in the, the, um, the summa that slavery violates natural law, which means That's, it's a sin. He yeah. acknowledges that it's part of the law of nations, but it's a sin because it's violating natural law because God created human beings to be free.
1: Yeah. yeah. One of the things you see, um, even back, um, the Cappadocians, I think it was Gregory of Nyssa, I believe, was, an, was another one, a forerunner um, that Aquinas will pick up later and 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 take his own way. But you saw in, in Christian theologians, reflecting on the image of God and the, the implications, um, already, I mean, we're talking all the way back with the Cappadocians, who this is after, you know, this is when they could settle and do some, some academic work and not have to always be on the run, um, to actually start spreading out the seed, you know, the seeds of of these ideas into churches. Um, But an interesting point, and I don't know the connections, I don't know the history in detail enough, but what would be the kind of relation of this developed notion of freedom that was also grounded in the biblical understanding of freedom in Christ and and, um, all in the image of God, um, but coupled with The issues for religious liberty, because I think the persecution of Christians was a big spark in the West of the notion of religious liberty, which I think is very much a forerunner of the other kinds of liberties that develop later. And maybe I I got that backwards, but I think I remember a work uh, recently that uh, Bragg is in, uh, Christianity and Freedom, Historical Perspectives, that really makes that kind of connection.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, What you find is the early church makes arguments for religious liberty very, very early on. Um, The most important of them was a guy named Lactantius, who was actually the Mm. tutor to Constantine's children while Constantine Ah. was still a pagan. Yes. And in his divine institutes, he made the argument that worship that is compelled cannot be pleasing to God. Mm. Only voluntary worship is pleasing to God. Therefore, you must have religious liberty. Hmm. And what's interesting is apparently when Constantine issues the Edict of Milan that everybody says made Christianity the official religion of the empire, it didn't. Didn't do that. Theodosius I does that later. What what Constantine does is he declares religious liberty in the empire, yeah. which has the effect of decriminalizing Christianity. The edict and then he sponsors Milan, certain yeah. things like that. Yeah. Edict of Milan, which is in 313 AD. But the wording of the Edict of Milan apparently is lifted directly from Lactantius's Divine Institutes. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. According to at least one source that I've read that it strongly suggests that. The, the problem with religious liberty came actually with Augustine. Yeah. Augustine argued that you had to allow religious liberty for pagans. Uh, but if someone was a heretic, it was appropriate to well, coerce them back into the church. <laughs> and this is going to be really the origin of heresy trials, inquisitions, all kinds of things like that from that point through, you know, into the early modern period. Hmm. So that, that I'm generally a fan of Augustine, but that one was a real blunder. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the thing
0: about, uh, you know, back to, to Paul and Philemon, back back to this whole matter of consent, uh, it's interesting how he appeals to Philemon uh, on that basis. He, he says, essentially, I have all, I have the right to, to, to require these things of you or what I'm asking you to do, but I'm not going to do that. Now, in a, in a way, you could say that he's just a very clever, you know, uh, tactician, <laughs> But, but in another way, isn't he in some sense through his, his method uh, reflecting how he wants uh, Philemon to relate to Onesimus in the sense that ne- the consent of Onesimus is something that you need to consider even as I am considering your consent. I have authority in this situation as I'm dealing with you, Philemon. You have authority in the situation as you're dealing with Onesimus. I'm giving you a model you know, he's not saying, he's not drawing the lines, he's not saying do exactly to Onesimus as I am doing to, to you with regard to you, but it's hard, awfully hard not to, to sort of follow the line, you know, or, or of reasoning to that conclusion. <laughs> if if Paul is appealing to me yeah. on the basis of love and consent, so I should, you know, regard Onesimus in the same way.
2: I'm giving you freedom to do what I'm telling you what is the right thing to do, but I'm giving you your freedom to do it. You might want to do the same thing with Onesimus to give him his freedom too. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think you're onto something there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So th- this is why I think, you know, with regard to the, to the, the, you know, to the canon of scripture, you know, we have other places that we can point to, you know, freedom in Christ, no slave, yeah. you know, you know, that kind of thing. But there's something about this letter that, uh, uh, I just, uh, I just believe uh, is proved instrumental in a way that some of those other scriptures uh, couldn't, couldn't uh, uh, be instrumental just simply because what you have in the situation with this letter to Philemon is this is all about slavery. (laughs) This particular letter is, is all about that. Whereas, you know, if you're talking about these other references or these other passages, you know, you can lose kind of that, the the meaning or the the significance of slavery in the context of the the letter. I I agree that it's there, but it's just, I just think that this is, this is my guess. I'm not saying that I'm speaking, you know, with authority on it, but this is one thing I I look at and I say, I think this is one of the reasons why Philemon made it
2: into the canon. (laughs) Well, I, I strongly suspect you're right, because what you have here is a nice concrete specific example of how these principles are applied in this situation. And it was a situation that was, as you say, it was universal around the world. It was certainly ubiquitous within the Roman empire. And given what Paul, I think you're right. Given what Paul says to uh, to uh, Philemon about Onesimus, I think other Christians reading this are going to say, hmm, what would Paul be saying to me here? Right, right. Anyway, we should yeah. kind of wrap
1: I this up. Uh, you know, anything, you, mm-hmm. you know, anything you want to say, Tom, as we wrap up? Yeah, I think the the final thing was kind of reiterating the kind of point I made earlier. Is what you see in the text over and over again in Paul's writing and other texts is the the significance of what hap- has happened because of Christ, um, and so you see the first fruits of that is the 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 changing of um, the perspective, the 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 vision, the disposition of believers now that the meaning of Christ for all things is starting to become manifest. All of reality has been touched by this this event and is being touched by it. The first fruits of that are the changes in relation from what sin had done to things, splitting up, perverted sense of dominance, um, you know, exploitation, broken relationships, is now starting the reversal in Christ. And so the Christian... Community becomes the first fruit of that and becomes the kind of exemplar, if you will, imperfect, being sanctified, but bearing witness to this fact that uh, in Christ things are different. And that becomes the ground, if you will, for um, the the church's ultimate stance, finally, <laughs> in some cases and in need of again today of saying this is a horrendous thing. Um, thing in relationship to who people are um, as creatures of, of God. Anything you want to say as we wrap up, Glenn?
2: I think I've said way too much already.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for listening to another episode of the theology podcast. We appreciate your interest and your support. We thank all of our financial supporters. We thank all the people who've given us nice ratings on, on uh, Apple podcasts and elsewhere. And, uh, hopefully if you are a listener in the pacific northwest we'll see you this week because uh, as i noted at the beginning of the episode this is the week that the podcast is up in the pacific northwest uh, going from portland to seattle to moscow and back again anyway we'll talk to you next time probably uh well hopefully next week bye-bye
2: bye now bye